All right. So that was called Ella's Song. That song was written as a nod to Ella Baker, who was one of the organizers during the civil rights movement in this country. And one of the legacies that she leaves is the notion that we cannot keep outsourcing our freedom to one heroic figure. That in fact, if we continue to outsource our freedom to the president, to the leader of a movement, at any time that person gets wiped out and the whole thing falls apart. It also absolves us of any kind of personal responsibility because if I put the source of my good in the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and he's gone, damn. If I put the source of my good in Mahatma Gandhi and he's gone, dang. And we could go through a long list of folks that that's true about. So the desire that I have in today's conversation is for us as a community to start to explore the ways that we may be in collusion with systems of separation or systems of oppression. Because it's great work that we do on the individual level, but if we don't know what we're saying yes to on a systemic level, we can't catalyze our influence, our power, our authority, our wisdom beyond ourselves. So that's what we're up to today, to explore that. I want you to know who these two women are. Stacy Gibson is a friend of this community. She has been here a number of times before. She is an educator. She is an English teacher at Francis Parker School in Lincoln Park. She has an organization called Transform the Collective, which does anti-oppression training. She is as I told her earlier, my words, she is on the planet to dismantle, to interrupt the systems that are keeping things trapped and stuck and some having opportunity and others not. And she's here to help us all wake up to that. She does very, very powerful work on the planet. She's going to be doing a workshop after today's service at 12 o'clock across the street. And I hope you will consider joining us. Because here's what's true, the work that we do as individuals impacts the collective. But not just our own navel-gazing, right? We're always looking up and out of the belly button into the world. How do I impact the big picture? And Gina Harris is one of our practitioners. She is a teacher in the village of Maywood, and she is the chair of the Minority Caucus for the National Education Association. Yes? She's so close for the Illinois Education Association for the state level, but I do some national level work, too. Okay, there you go. That's what it is. But we did run a candidacy, and you were elected on a national level. I was elected. Okay, very good. Very good. Okay. So for anybody who knows Chicago, Maywood... The elementary school in Maywood is a vastly different environment than Francis Parker. It takes about 28 Gs to go to Francis Parker, something like that. So what's interesting is these two women are doing similar work in very different environments. And when we explore this thing called oneness, the power and presence of God is in and as all things. It is the very essence of who I am. It is the very essence of who you are. The typical tradition in uh, recent history and the New Thought movement is to go the way of being colorblind. And y'all, that does not work. 
So we're here to just get related to what does it mean if we're not colorblind. And this is, per, this is actually the essence of the teaching. See, the essence of new thought of metaphysics is to explore what lives in the subconscious realm and to expose it such that you may transform it. So we can't just not look at what's in the collective consciousness of this country because it stays there then. We got to bring it up and out. We got to look at it and we got to deal with it. So just notice if in this conversation, it may have already began for some of you, you might find yourself bored. You might find yourself sleepy. And usually that is an indication of not knowing how to deal with confronting information. So just notice. Because we're here just to stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. When I start to not like what I'm hearing, when I start to get uncomfortable, when I start to get scared, I get sleepy, and I sort of tune out. So just notice if that happens. So, um, Stacy, who are you here on the planet? Why do you exist? Lola, how long do you have, darling? Um, uh, so my name is Stacy Gibson. Um, I come from uh, my mother... Pansy Gibson, my father, Harold Gibson, um, and a host of people behind them, uh, some of whom I don't know by name, um, but I know by spirit. Um, I come from um, a people who are remarkably visionary, and it's their ability to vision that has allowed me um, to transcend in this moment. So um, by day, I'm an English teacher. That's what they call that. Um, ask my students, they'll tell you something completely different. <laughs> Um, I also am a parent to a 17-year-old who's uh, in the back. I see you, baby girl. Um, and Salome is, uh, you know, the future of me. So um, my investments are deep. I am simultaneously investing in the past um, and in the future. And so what that means for me is that I have to be very intentional about where I show up in the present. Um, and so to be in those parallel universes, it's pretty mighty. Um, but it is also complicated. And so part of what I'm doing in uh, the universe is honoring that difficulty and uh, telling the truth around all of that. Cool. Thank you. You're welcome. So let me um, just get right to it, if you don't mind. Okay. Lola. Okay. Um, it's not like Lola to get right to it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what does whiteness mean to you? Because if we're going to have a conversation about race in America, um, so often it's easy to orient our conversation around people of color. But um, the people I'm actually most worried about sometimes is uh, white America. So can you just tell us from your perspective, what does whiteness mean to you? I'm going to answer that um, in a couple of different ways. Um, and I can't promise that I'll even answer that. But um, to be clear, when the conversation shifts to whiteness, um, there are all kinds of things that happen. So I'll tell you what's happening to me even right now energetically. Um, there are so many rules to whiteness that are everywhere that are completely amplified um, without being audible. And so 
one of the things I'm thinking about is, you know, what does it mean to um, invest in those rules with or without my permission? Because with or without anyone's permission, they are being scripted with this whiteness. And so when I think about what whiteness means, um, I'm thinking about in this moment on this stage being asked by a white woman to talk to a predominantly white audience about what whiteness means. There's some very peculiar dynamics in the room right now. Um, and I have to draw that in because part of the rules of whiteness is that you do not ever make visible the rules of whiteness. Right? So we can coin this, whiteness is Fight Club. <laughs> Those of you who saw the movie will know. Um, and so that's happening right now. Um, at the same time, um, you know, I think about and observe whiteness a lot, knowing that I'm both in it but not of it. Um, and so as an educator, as a parent, um, as a daughter, as someone's sister, um, as a lover, what does it mean to divest my energy from whiteness? Um, what does it mean to even name it, to even understand what it is? And so one of the things that I'll say is, um, at one point, um, I thought about, you know, like, there are these things called, you know, there are these ideas called, you know, whiteness and white people. Um, and then I started to think about whiteness, and I started to think about a tyranny that was both inside and beyond whiteness. Mm. Um, and I started to think about what does it mean to give words to that so I have a better understanding of this complexity so that I can pull it from me. Mm. And so I had to start to realize not all white people embody this tyranny. Um, and I had to come to some realizations about why was it convenient for me to think that way. All the while, though, being very clear, there's a peculiar kind of behaviors that are inhabited by many, not all, white folks. Um, and I'm okay with being able to see that and start to name that. And so I don't have a hard answer for that because it continues to change. But what I do continue to see um, around this kind of unconscious, tyrannical whiteness is uh, endless consumption, um, endless uh, lack of reflection, um, a kind of panic that consumes and eats everything. Um, I see a kind of intergenerational training. I'm very curious about how white children begin to inhabit these behaviors so that by the time they're teenagers, um, they're acting out these behaviors. And these are children who are beautiful spirits. Mm -hmm. They come from parents who are beautiful spirits. What has happened? Mm -hmm. So that's some of what I'm thinking about. You opened it up, you went there, I can go there. <laughs> and just like, I wanna constantly make translations so because we are at a very wide spectrum of the conversation. So, when we look at these distinctions, remember Bodhi Spiritual Center exists to dissolve the lie of separation. But you can't dissolve that which you cannot see. So if you can't see it, you have to first distinguish it. And that's, that, is the, that is the importance of having the conversation. So um, of all the places that you could have taught on the planet, why did you pick Francis Parker? Because I could. <laughs> um, 
the opportunity was there, mm -hmm. and uh, why not me? Why not then? Mm -hmm. um, and Francis Parker, for me, is a place where um, I have been able to really begin to be introspective um, and also translate some of what is happening. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, private schools operate in a way um, where there is far more teacher autonomy. Right? And my heart breaks because of that. I was built in public schools. I love public schools. Um, I long for public schools. I say that all the time. Um, there is a way, though, that teachers are allowed and expected um, to challenge themselves. And the infrastructure in many ways supports that. Mm -hmm. So I went where I was supported so I could be even better, um, so I can sit on this stage with you. Mm -hmm. And Gina, why'd you pick, why'd you pick Maywood? Um, I chose Maywood for a number of reasons, but really I feel like that's where I was needed. So I went to where I was needed. And I had been mentoring in the community already for quite a bit, and so it was an easy um, transition for me to be there. And I had been in Schiller Park for a while, which is a very diverse population, a lot of immigrants, students, and it was amazing. And I knew that my heart was back in Maywood, so I needed to go back to Maywood. So what I can say about the idea of whiteness and teachers and being in this collective idea is that the uncovering is the critical piece. And I also want to voice in the room because as, as we're doing these trainings with teachers and educators and education professionals around the country, what we're finding is this is very uncomfortable. So if you are uncomfortable right now, that's okay. Like, I just want to out that because it's very true that this is an uncomfortable conversation. Regardless of where you come from or who you are, it's, it does something for us. So if you want to shift a little, it's okay because it's uncomfortable. But the idea that we are in the process of uncovering for ourselves, where are, we, where are our hidden or unconscious biases? Where are the things that we're swimming in this sea of whiteness and all the pieces that Stacey was talking about? Where are our ideas commingled with that so that we can see it and say, oh, wait a minute, maybe I did say this to this person and this, this to that person and I said it completely differently because one person was black and one person was white. So it's a, it's a way for us to begin to become aware. So one of my theories, which I've shared with both of you, is, um, and I, I make up, Stacy, that this is inherent in your work, with Transform the Collective, um, and that is the idea that if all of us are on this thing that we have talked a fair amount about at Bodhi, the drama triangle, victim, villain, hero. So long as we are in one of those spots, we're just shifting around in the same conversation. And I make up that a place like um, people who might be uh, attracted to the work of the teachers union or uh, you know, the, the work in, in a community like Maywood could really easily find themselves in the position of victim. And oftentimes the uh, structure of a school like Francis Parker could easily find itself in the position of hero. We're going to go be noble ones that help save the universe. And then it's easy to be in the other position, like, I can't believe this is happening again, you know? And, and what I am interested in in your work is moving out of that dance. Because so long as we keep people in spots of villain, victim, and hero, even if you move on the triangle, you're still in the drama. So how do you get up and out into a new paradigm of possibility? 
One of the things that, that is important for me is, um, are we going to commit to telling the whole truth? Um, what I've seen are a lot of folks, myself included, who are invested in telling maybe 75% of the truth um, and telling it really, really well and beautifully and there's backup <laughs> dancers and glitter, like all that happens, right? Um, and so in that other 25% of the truth um, is often um, some blood memory that needs to be tended to. Um, there is probably some very, very deep ancient wounds. One of the things I talk about is that racism in some ways feels very neo-ancient to me. Mm. Um, it is very automated. Um, what does it mean to automate something that is still so new? This is a very new country. I think people forget that. I forget that. Um, but the script is so profound. And so for me, to transcend that drama triangle means um, naming the entire truth. Um, and sometimes that is, um, that's going to break hearts. Mm. Yeah, and so the, the quote that comes to my mind is the Audre Lorde quote that says, you can't disrupt the master's house using the master's tools. If we use the same systems of patriarchy, of what I, I mean, you could put a lot of different words to it. If we use those same tools and techniques to do the healing work, we will likely yield the same results. Would you agree with that? Either one of you. Well, I would agree to an extent, but I, I, systems of oppression are a real and valid thing that is occurring in our society and in, in multiple places. You can look anywhere you're going to see it. The thing is, those systems are made up of individuals, and the individuals moving together collectively. So if we are moving together collectively in a new way, even with some of those tools, because we need to understand what those tools are in order to be able to put them down, break them down, or set them to the side. So you can't even begin to understand that there's where the issue is with the tools until you know exactly what the tools are. And then once you see them, and you say, oh, well, there's actually a school-to-prison pipeline that's happening. And uh, boys of color are being put into special education more frequently. I wonder why that is. And then we start to look. Oh, wait, maybe that's a tool. Maybe the industrial prison complex is happening because of the tools that are already being used. So how do we break down that tool now? So how do I get over here in first grade and second grade to ensure that the students are getting what they need so that they're not being funneled into that kind of a system. So it starts with individuals, but if you don't know that something like that exists and you don't know what the tool is, you can't, you can't begin to break down the tool so that it cannot be used in that way anymore. So where I find myself struggling is I, I'm an avid reader. Like I read like a crazy person. And I'm I, I like to think I'm incredibly well-informed, and I have a tendency to look beyond first glance, so I'm constantly digging stuff up. But that alone, for me, feels like, okay, so now I know all this. What's, my, what's mine to do? And so I use the, the influence and the platform I have for a conversation like this, you know, but... but you know, one of, the, one of the concerns I've shared with you, Gina, is that that, that activist spirit, I mean, it's so important because it does move things, but it's not sustainable. So, you know, oftentimes people will ask, like, well, what am I to do? What am I to do? What am I to do? What do you say to that? And I think uh, holding that question and going back to your original question, yeah. right, about whiteness, um, and even, you know, being in this moment right now, 
what has happened to the energy around your, in, your initial question. You know, that's one of the things I'm thinking about sitting right here in this moment. Um, and so, you know, the, the to-do part is very attractive mm. because it is uh, action-focused. Um, you can tweet it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can Instagram it, right? Um, and, and all of that matters. Um, in this very, very big house of oppression, uh, there are lots of rooms. And so many of us can go into lots of rooms and serve. Um, I am, for me personally, uh, when I think about my to-do, I am very interested in the psychic collusion. I am very interested in um, the kind of splitting of the mind and body. So instead of becoming mind and body, this becomes mind versus body. And so for me, I'm very interested. My to-do is to align the mind, the spirit, and the body. Um, in order to tell the most complete truth. And so for me, that looks a lot different. Um, I'm not in activist spaces in very traditional ways, um, but I am radically um, an activist. Um, and it, it is, uh, it's not easy, because I can see the blueprint for getting on the bus and going on the march. And I fully will do, you know, I'll support those people who do that. Less so is this kind of blueprint about reclaiming the soul and the spirit. Because all of this mutilation is happening at a soul level and at a spirit level. So I'm very interested in uncovering and living through that blueprint. I think also the doing does get a little bit deceptive, right? Because we're doers by nature. But the piece is that where real transformation happens, and we talk about this in the unity dialogues because it comes up really quickly with people, is... Okay, so we're going to talk about it, and then we're going to go do something. It's like, well, actually, our doing is sitting in the circle having this conversation. The doing is being in a space of understanding about where we are. Because then what happens, and Lila, I loved your point there, the idea that you have a platform, right? But we all have a platform. There are people that listen to each and every one of us in our sphere of influence. We each have a circle of people around us, and we have our own platform. So where, how are we going to be, and how are we going to be in um, our own internal work? So like she said, this is the, exactly where... I just love you so much. Likewise. So um, the, it's so clear that what, what is needing to happen is that spiritual transformation that comes from the inside and it's our own internal work. It, it begins to outpicture just like our principles, right? If we're using metaphysical principles, you got to start in here. So I wouldn't have known that I needed to change something until I started to take a look in here like, oh, wait a minute, this piece is out of whack. This has to, i got to do, like, what's my thought pattern that's behind this? So we have to move into our internal process. Before the doing and the marching, and I'm a marcher too. Now, I will be at every march. If you tell me that there's somewhere we need to go protest, you can count on me. I have a sign ready. But, the, but after that, after we've marched and after we've protested, it's important for us to be in the spaces that we're in and say to people when something comes up, wow, that felt a little uncomfortable. I felt a little uncomfortable by that. I wonder what that's about. And be able to have these conversations that are truly courageous conversations that get us to the deep part of the work. So, Gina, let me ask you this. You're a good person for me to pose this question to. Because one of the things I keep thinking about is um, there has been a ton of money and energy uh, thrown at all of these, you know, actions. Uh, The marches, the resistance, the social justice curriculum. (laughs) Um, But still, even that continues to be eaten by the system. So what is happening where 
um, even the resistance um, is being consumed by the oppression. Talk to me about that. That's what I'm working on. Right, so this system, so... Man, the system is so vast can and it's I, so Can big. I add, would you mind translating that into real frank terms? Like, like, yeah. Thanks, Lola. <laughs> I want to make sure we don't miss stuff. Yeah. So um, I watch people with deep amounts of dedication and energy and resources um, begin to put plans in place that is supposed to, these plans are supposed to dismantle and disrupt. And I'm watching even some of those interventions just completely disappear. It looks to me like the program that pops up in January and then the doors are closed by August. Um, And that happens, right? Like it's defunded or um, all of a sudden, you know, they've merged with another program, but it no longer exists. So, So I'm curious about What's happening where the interventions, um, that's also becoming, is that becoming a commodity? Is that becoming consumed? What's happening? Okay, so what I thought you were saying was um, the allure of a resistance movement being co-opted by the very thing that actually is keeping it in place. We can go with that. Okay. I mean, either of those things. I think the, you know, like, like the resistance movement, it's such sexy language today, right? It's like, yeah, resist. It's like, but if the whole rest of your life is entangled with the very thing that is, is causing a reaction to be in resistance, then we have a basic challenge there that I feel, I feel like we're not talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so either one, either, anywhere we go with that. Yeah. The, the piece is that we're not looking at the 25%, right? So the systems that are getting colluded and the systems that, like the idea of resistance being sexy and the uh, work that we're setting about to do is we're not looking at the whole picture. We're missing the most important piece, and the most important piece is the individual and the power of the individual when they are in collective. But what happens is there's a shiny new thing. So I can only speak to education so, and union organizing. So there's a shiny new thing. So let's go over here and do this shiny new thing. Well, when we're doing that shiny new thing, something else may be happening because we didn't look at the whole picture. And so we're not looking at a holistic view of all of the pieces of what needs to come together for a real transformation to happen. And we get caught up with this thing. Okay, so this is the way to go. And then all these other things are transpiring. If we're not, we need the big picture. And we need, for me, what it feels like is we need to each have our own ownership in wherever our part is in all of this all of the system, the holistic view of the entire thing. And I'm not saying that people need to run out and change your job or do something different, but there's just an awareness. Like, so if we, I always believe that we need to make this so practical. In your work, where you are every single day, have you taken a look around to see what's happening? Right? What are the conversations that are being had at work, and are they being had in an intentional way that allows people to be more of who they are and honored in who they are than less of who they are? And that is where the simple pieces come in. And when we start to talk about the systems and the question about how do we move with um, once things start to get taken or like stripped away or sucked into something else, because there is this idea of privatization of education. There is this idea of, but our education system has been what it has been for a very long time. And 
um, in, not in opposition to the... You mean there were the, problems before DeVos? <laughs> right. Oh. The, um, the, the, the question about you can't use the master's tools to um, break down the masters. Well, you can't, that, I, that Einstein quote about you can't break down, the, solve the problem with the same mind that created the problem. We're needing to think outside of ourselves in a way that actually makes us go into ourselves. I know that is a crazy concept, right? But we have to go in before we can go out. And it's not happening because we're getting stuck because we're not telling the whole story. Because we're uncomfortable and afraid to say, man, when I see people from a certain country, I think this way. So here we are, a room of 300 people. If you could just say what's true for you right here, right now, it's in the space, you want to put words to it, what would you say? Like if you, if you were to say, what's true for me right here, right now is this. Because one of the things that I, I feel like in the conversation is like there's, a, we, there's like all this fancy language used and I can't even, sometimes I'm like, I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's right. like if we were to just call it out, like what's the thing that needs and wants to be said? What's that 25%? Sophisticated systems of oppression require sophisticated responses. Um, we are going to have to be much more sophisticated, not necessarily much more convoluted, but we're going to have to approach what we're dealing with in a much different way because we're dealing with a much, much, much different system than we've dealt with in the past. Um, the other thing I'd say is that this is very private, back-of-the-heart work. Mm -hmm. um, it is very personal. Some of it is very, very lonely. And so while I know I'm sitting here talking about sophisticated systems, I'm also talking about massaging the back of your heart around this and releasing this tyranny that's just been dropped onto us with or without our permission. And can you explain for you what you mean when you say tyranny? The tyranny is, um, the tyranny is what happens when you posed that question 20 minutes ago about what is whiteness and the tyranny is what drops into the room around what that question means. Um, it's, again, those unwritten rules that n I don't think there's a place where people go to learn the rules of whiteness 101. Maybe there is. But, but those rules erupt, and they shape every single moment. That's tyranny. That's soft violence. Mm. Nobody has to put their hands on me for me to know I could be swiftly punished for beginning to speak into whiteness and naming whiteness and going against the rules of this kind of like collusive whiteness. Um, the tyranny is the expectation that if you are white, you are supposed to show up and uphold the system. That is a type of tyranny. What if you're the white person who doesn't want to get down with that? Where do you go? What, you know, what happens? I don't have the answer for that. That's tyranny. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think about when I think about that. And so just, so, the, so this is how I would articulate it in like mm -hmm. a real world, world example. You know, I moved to Oak Park as a single mom of two children of color. And I moved there because I wanted to have them in an environment where they could see black nuclear middle class families. Because it was the, it was the, it was the best way that I knew for them to have that uh, filtering through their subconscious mind. So my, my son, who's now 17, he's a junior at OPRF, had the experience of um, integration. He had the illusion of integration in junior high. And then he got to the high school, 
And I called him after his first day of school, and I said, how was it? You know, they make this big deal about your freshman year and, you know, this whole week. And he said, it was terrible. And I was like, what? What do you mean it was terrible? And he's like, I am the only black kid in every single one of my classes. And he had not seen that in his junior high environment because differentiation had not yet occurred. And so here he was in all honors courses, and he was the only person of color. So for me, that's how, that would be a, my living example of the tyranny of whiteness. And the challenge is that if you don't have, like, if you don't have a child who's impacted by that, if you don't have a personal experience of being impacted by that, it's easy to just keep going along unconscious to that existence. You it can is. break it all down. <laughs> I mean, you can tell me you're cra- you can tell me whatever you want to say. I'm listening. Yeah, but you know, just as a mother, it's like, man, I want to go crazy, and that to me is how I experience the tyranny. That would be an example of how I experience the tyranny of whiteness. And then my my child is navigating something in their school experience that's unique to them, which is, of course, you could say is true of everybody, blah, 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 but say something brilliant. (laughs) Or not. (laughs) Um, Of course, I can see that tyranny in schools. I think for me at this point, um, I'm so interested in the seemingly benign behaviors Mm -hmm. that are not at all benign, Mm -hmm. that are highly orchestrated, highly scripted and the challenge for me is um, in some ways I can completely see it coming and so that goes in you know direct contrast right because I'm not judging I'm holding people for what they are but I can see this coming miles away would you be willing to give us an example let me think about that okay I'm gonna go to Gina I'll think about okay that. great I actually um, know a wonderful educator who shared with me who taught in a district that was predominantly white that shared with me that one of the issues that she saw was that the kids already in fifth grade were holding an idea of better than. And be, the white kids were holding an idea of better than and the black kids were holding an idea of, not, of less than. It was already present in the classroom in fifth grade. And she's an amazing teacher, so she did numerous things that brought that out in a, at a fifth grade level that would allow them to be able to explore, wow, what are we doing here and is this how we really want to be? And I can tell you, because she, she was also a teacher of my child, that um, the way that she was able to do that transformed her experience. My own daughter, she's seven, my younger daughter, 17, uh, transformed her, her experience to the extent that she was able to see it and feel comfortable. And the, the, somehow she was able to level the playing field. But there was a way of conversation that was had that was open that was welcoming, that was ensuring that there was representation of books, of, that there were representation of examples, that there was, um, that each person was heard equally. And I know that that is not always the case. And so because we're both educators, it's very easy for us to give you the examples of the classroom. But I just want to take you back to wherever you are. Who is being heard? Who's being listened to? And is there an idea, this idea of separation that is less than or better, greater than, less than, that is happening, and how do we begin to just recognize it? 
the first step is the recognition, right? So I'm at work and I see people that are like, there's somebody over here, a person of color, who's not being talked to and not getting any you know, conversation or every time they have an opinion, it's shot down. Or So uh, how are these things happening? Because it's happening in real life. It's happening in real time every day. And so for us to get really aware with it. And, the, and the, I haven't heard the word tyranny before and I appreciate that as a word um, that really gets to the heart of what the feeling is. And I can tell you that the um, comments that come back to me after doing some of these trainings is, well, I'm not a racist. Like, I really don't want you to think that I'm a racist. Like, I don't see any racist comments. I'm like, I know you don't. You're a very dear friend of mine. I know you would not say those racist comments. There is an article, if you have not read it, by Peggy McIntosh called Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. And it is um, written by a white woman, Peggy McIntosh. I think that sounds like a white woman. And, um, <laughs> and it's the idea of white privilege, but framed in a way that it just, it's 50 statements and 50 statements that you can just read through to see, wow, is this something that I even recognized? Did, I didn't even know that that was a thing. And I read the list and there were some things on there that I was like, wow, I didn't even realize that either. So it's just ways that we can become aware continually and constantly aware in the little pieces that we can, bit by bit by bit, and then go march. No. <laughs> so we're going to wrap up. You have approximately 300 people sitting here. If there was one thing that you wanted to say, what would it be? One final comment. If I could leave you all with this, this is what is true for me. We don't have to co-write psychosis. There's an intergenerational psychosis around race and we simply don't have to co-write it. It means you're gonna have to write something else. Um, but too much hinges on us automatically co-writing a psychosis that is absolutely not ours. I think the thing that I would like to leave everyone with is um, very similar, but I use different terms is that we're swimming in a sea. Fish do not know that they are in water. And we do not know that we're in always this sea of this tyranny, these ideas, this consciousness that is generational, that has been passed on and on and on. We're in the water. So we need to wake up and see that we're in the water. And then once we know we're in the water, we can say, hey, this is what the water is like. Maybe we want the water to be a little different. And we do that individually and then we move it into our groups, and then we take it into our larger and larger ways of being. But it is in here first. So I'm very grateful for the work that you do Lola, on the planet. what would you say? Don't even try it. Oh. Don't even try it. Exactly. I see you, Lola, right? <laughs> what would I say? Um, I would say that for me, this is probably the most important exploration of my life. I'm pretty sure it's why I was put on the planet. Um, and I know that in order for me to be a leader in integrity with this community, there has to be a conversation occurring within this community um, around these topics because uh, it's basically what I'm here to do and be. And so I have to find ways to have the conversation within this community in a meaningful way um, in order for me to be in integrity with myself. So. I think you just did that. 
Yeah, so thank you. <laughs> I just want to um, take a moment to say thank you. Um, again, uh, to, to be in spaces where um, it is necessary to tell the truth, are, it's rare. It's increasingly rare, as a matter of fact. So I want to thank all of you um, for your ears and uh, for being willing to listen. And thank you, Lola Wright, as well. Oh, there are a lot of brilliant people doing incredible work, so I'm very grateful for that. So we're going to take this into prayer. I just invite you to close your eyes, take a deep breath, shift your body a little bit. Perhaps if it's comfortable, allow your feet to be firmly planted on the ground. Perhaps place your hands in the open and receptive position. So very grateful to come together in the presence, the presence of this thing I call God, the infinite, that which is in back of all things. It is the nature of who I am and what I am. I am this God stuff. And as that is true for me, I know that that is true for each of us here, that there is a power and presence coursing through each of us expressing perfectly as us. So I know and affirm this day that we come together to wake up evermore to the parts of ourselves that we have hidden, to the parts of ourselves that may be hurt, to the parts of ourselves that we have not yet even distinguished. We come together to say all of it is welcome here. All of it is welcome here. We bring our fragmented identities into this space to weave a tapestry allow ourselves to come into a place of vulnerability and of healing. What I know and affirm is that this community is a beloved community that is here to reveal love. What I know is that this incredible community attracts people that want to delve into the subconscious realm, that want to distinguish the parts of ourselves that have been laying dormant but operating in the background, to shine the light on all parts. I'm very grateful for each and every person in this room, each and every person joining us via live stream, for everyone that has allowed themselves to be a place and space of conscious union with the divine.
take a deep breath. very grateful for this time. I release this word here and now, knowing it is done. All is well here. And so it is.